Hello, this is Alex Stevenson. Previously, in this three-part festival of military activity covering what's been going on in 1800, you've marvelled at the machinations and brilliant manoeuvrings of General Jean-Victor Moreau um, north of the Alps in southern Germany, including his victory at the Battle of Hochstadt. You've trembled in awe at Napoleon Bonaparte's audacious crossing of the Alps and the Italian campaigning in that theatre that he's been so successful in in the past. And now in this final part, you get to hear the culmination of that campaign, the Battle of Marengo, with none other than David Hollins, who will once again be bringing you his expertise in untrammeled length over the course of the next hour or so. So here we go then. This is one of the big ones. It's the Battle of Marengo. Right then, time to pick up the story on the evening of the 13th, I think it is, David. So over to you once again. Uh, well, by now, uh, Victor has, has taken over the uh, advance guard uh, of the main French army, uh, a lot of which is more back towards uh, San, Giuliano, uh, San Giuliano. And uh, he goes up towards Marengo, goes through, through Spinetta, which is about, um, about five kilometres or so to the, west, uh, to the west of San Giuliano. And uh, then he turns northwest to Marengo. And um, there he finds Felt Marshal Lieutenant O'Reilly, who has a small force of about 3,000. Uh, Victor's got about 8,000. Um, and they're holding Marengo and the line of the Fontanoni stream. Oh, yeah. T- tell us about the, the geography of the battlefield now as we get towards the, the actual place where this is going to be really fought out. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously Marengo is, is the key point. Uh, Marengo is about three kilometres to the east of Alessandria. Right. And so Alessandria is the, 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 the big local settlement. And um, then there's the Bormida, which is a quite a big river just outside Alessandria. And there's a, a bridge and a big bridgehead in front of it. And then the road runs down uh, to the Fontanoni. Now, the Fontanoni is now, it's really just a channel. It's been dug out and sorted out and half of it's concreted over. <laughs> so it doesn't look anything like it did then. Yeah, because as as was as is often the case, then it was more sprawling and uh, sort of marshy areas. Where, where, yeah, yeah. Well, this this is the problem. Um, it's in several channels and it's all boggy ground all around. And in some places, it's seven or eight feet deep. Right. Whereas now you can just kind of step over it. Really, yeah. Um, and so uh, the uh, there's well, it's what they call a bridge. The locals had to pay to maintain it, so really they only made sure as long as you could get a wagon over it. They didn't really care, so it's not really <laughs> it's not a proper bridge. It's uh, it's more a collection of um, beams and planks, really. It's nothing more than that. And then Marengo itself is um, uh, about uh, three or four hundred meters uh, further east from there, and behind. Uh, Marengo is um, running north-south is they well they call it a vine belt but actually what it was was a lot of mulberry trees okay um, which they use for for making silk locally the big tower in Marengo is, is full of or was full of silkworms at the time and uh, but between these trees they would sling the vines it's not right. like modern viniculture which is all based on frames and all that sort of thing they were just so it's almost like a like a screen. Yes. 
in uh, in front of this woodland, and then uh, from around um, between those two and down towards Spinetta, which is about 700, 800 meters down to the um, southeast. It's um, covered in um, cereal crops. Now, okay. in, those, in those days, cereal crops grew six foot or so high. It could be a couple of meters high. So it's very difficult unless you're mounted to see what's going on. It's, it sounds like the worst possible place to fight a battle. Um, <laughs> yes, they would be better, they'd be better off around around San Giuliano because of the fighting there in the previous year that had all been flattened. Yeah, that sounds more like it. Not never mind never mind the fog of war. This is the serial of war. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the screams of war. But um, the Fontanoni runs um, north south behind Marengo to the to the west of Marengo there towards Alessandria. Right, and it runs north south, but the. Um, just south of the bridge, it turns west, um, and so the, there's like a corner just where the bridge is, and um, so this becomes rather crucial because Victor fairly quickly he evicts O'Reilly from uh, Marengo, and some troops under Gardan cross the Fontanone, and this means. It has the advantage, I suppose, for the Austrians in that the the French then thought, oh yeah, this is just this rear guard that was supposed to be there waiting for troops coming up from Genoa. Yeah. But it's worse for the Austrians because now their their main force is now bottled up and it's going to have to, it's going to have to get it, get over the Fontanone. Because they've crossed they've crossed the the Fontanone and they're in Marengo now. Um but the French have got, got Marengo and then then they they've some they've got some units over because the main Austrian army is still back at Alessandria. Right, yeah. So you've got a small bridgehead um, which are sort of isolated uh, on on uh, to the east of the Fontanoli. Okay. Uh, no, there's, there's there's no there's no bridgehead as such on the Fontanoli. The bridgehead's on the Bormida. So the Bormida is the river between Alessandria and Marengo. Yeah, it's just outside Alessandria. It's just on okay. the edge of the edge of the city. I see. And the Fontanoli is that to the? That's a lovely come through. Come down about three kilometres down the road. Right. Okay. And then you've got the Fontanoli. And okay. then about 300 metres beyond that is Marengo. Got it. Okay. Um, right. I, 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 need a, I need my, my battlefield map. I, I'm, yeah. Okay. So, okay. So got it now. So, yeah, it's amazing how, how windy the bore meter is between Alessandria and Marengo there. Oh, yeah. It's been straightened quite a lot since, since, the, since the battle. That's very striking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so, so the village of Marengo itself is... It's relatively small in the general scheme of things. Oh yes, there's only a few houses and a church, and yeah, um, and and the, the farm is the main um, feature of it. Right. So to to resume then, to resume then, um, uh, yeah, do do go ahead. So um, uh, when this when news got back to the Austrian headquarters, there's a there's a big argument on the staff um, about what they're going to do. Uh, there are ideas about moving some of the pontoons on the Bormida so that they can outflank the, the French position either to the north or the south. But essentially it's too late to start moving pontoons now and they're going to have to fight their way out. Yeah, th there's, there's simply no options for them at this stage. Yeah. Um, and so on the morning of the 14th of June, um, you've got about 30,000 Austrian troops altogether 
uh, facing about 27,000 French. Um, but the French are just expecting to fight a rearguard action, and the Austrians think, oh, well, the French are obviously there in somewhat greater strength than we anticipated, but we can still keep up with the main plan. Okay, yeah, keep the show on the road. So they've got the, the, so they're going to push across this Fontanoni Creek towards Marengo itself, where Victor's lying in wait. Yeah. The other problem the Austrians have is that um, Ott, who's going up towards the northwest to Castelseriolo, um, he, he gets held up. And uh, the reason for that is there's a rather jumpy outpost down at uh, Acqui, which is to the southwest of Alessandria. And the commander of the outpost is convinced that Suchet and Massena have turned up. Oh, no. There's an urgent message goes back to Alessandria. And the result of that is that uh, Zach sends two Hussar regiments and a cavalry battery uh, down to Acqui. And he also sends a Hussar regiment up to um, Casale to, to watch the main crossing over the Po in case they need to do that. The effect of that is that um, the main Austrian advance goes down to Marengo, but Ott is held up. That's so frustrating, isn't it? it, it you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we see this in battles of, of this period all the time, the sort of what-ifs. If only they could just have avoided that, that small mistake or that small misunderstanding. Here's another classic example of that. Oh, yes, this one's going to be full of it, don't you? <laughs> don't you worry about that. Um, so the, the, the Austrians march off about 9 o'clock uh, from Alessandria, so it's getting towards 10 by the time the main column is down at Marengo, and uh, they launch the, the first assault, but they have this problem that the French are well-positioned around Marengo, but also because the Fontanoni turns west, um, just just to the south of Marengo, to the, the Marengo Bridge. The French have got troops along there, so they can en- put enfilading fire into the main Austrian column as well. Yeah, it feels like a pretty strong French defensive position here. It is It is a good position, and Victor handles it very well. He's got uh, Rivol is actually in Marengo, and then the rest of the troops are sort of strung out across in front of the bridge and then round uh, to this side position. And... Um, so the first assault is made and it fails. And in the process, Haddock, who's leading the assault, is fatally wounded. Um, and he was he was actually the main, he was supposed to be the main cavalry commander. So the, the cavalry now is gonna is gonna start breaking up. But meanwhile, uh, Ott, uh, sorry, uh, O'Reilly rather, O'Reilly has gone to to the south. This O'Reilly, one of the Austrian commanders. Yes, he was the one who'd been tipped out of Marengo itself, and so they, they took his troops. Uh, he not, he yeah. was sent south. Um, really, uh, the 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 French had occupied a small farm called Stortiglione, which is just on the sort of Austrian side of the farm, where the Fontanoni turns back south again. It looks quite narrow, doesn't it? So you, you've got this one of the the um, winding um, curves of the Bormida River that's sort of curving in the shape of a um, well, not not a letter C, the other the other half of of the O, as it were, and then the, it was almost as if there's a tiny gap between that and then the Fontanoni Creek, which is forming a letter C as it turns from west to to south. And I can see Stortiglione, this farm you've mentioned, is 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 just sort of through that gap. Yeah, yeah. And the French uh, had occupied the farm, and so uh, Alt is sent down there with his three thousand troops and. Uh, 
the one remaining who's our regiment. So all the Austrian, the main Austrian forces got now is like dragoons. How important is is that farmhouse then? Is it the Hugemont of uh, Marenko? Um, not really. It's just okay. um, the the thing about it was that they were they they thought there might be a French outflanking move, right, coming okay. in that way. And then beyond that, of course, they they know that somewhere down the line they're going to get rumbled, and Desai is going to get recalled. Right. Got it. So okay. that is that's the main road down to down to Novi. Yeah. So he's kind of covering that. So uh, Victor is, is he's sending the first messages back to Bonaparte and Lan had been sent up with his uh, forces as well. And he arrives about 11 o'clock. Would we say, yeah, Lan was sort of the first reserve, as it were. He was clustered just, just out of the way. Second battle line, however you, however you yeah. want to look at it. It's, it's yeah. Victor in front, of, in front of Lan. Yeah. And um, Otter's headed up towards uh, Castel Seriolo. And he gets, he finally gets there about 11 o'clock. Now then, so Castel Seriolo, I can see it's to the north of Marengo um, with the Fontanoni Creek um, uh, it, it, it's still uh, on the Alessandria, so the east, uh, sorry, the western side um there it, it, it's it's almost looks slightly bigger than marengo it's it's a decent oh um, yes it's it's yeah. a decent it's a yeah, big village or small town depending on what you uh how you look at it uh because yeah. it's on that direct road in from from uh Vogera that the austrian fake plan had been trying to induce the french to come down right okay yeah so otter's got uh got there about 11 o'clock um and it's, this is quite a critical time because the Napoleon's getting definite news now back at his headquarters at Torre di Garofoli, which is 11 kilometres uh, to the east of Marengo, about four kilometres beyond San Giuliano, where the main French forces have been camping. And um, the first thing I'll notice is when he gets there is there's no sign of the French. He's expecting them to come down this direct road from Vogera through Sale. Uh, there's nothing there, and he's sending scouts up the road. And at the same time, uh, the Austrians are making their second assault um, over the, the Fontanoni there around, around Marengo, again, unsuccessfully. So there's kind of a stalemate uh, has been reached. Bonaparte's deciding what he's going to do. He's, he's assembling his troops. He's got, uh, he's got the guard and uh, most of Monnier's troops. So the, uh, around sort of midday time, it's, uh, things are really starting to move. Bonaparte's decided he's going to get up there, have a look and see what's going on, gets, gets his reserve troops uh, marching up the main road through San Giuliano. Zach realises they've got stuck at Marengo, so he uh, directs Pilati with uh, two of the Light Dragoon regiments to cross the Fontanoni where it's, where it's running east-west. So it's between sort of Marengo and Storticlione. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So to go through there, but he's uh, it's it's all it's still very marshy and multi-channel all around there. And, and and that's not exactly a diversion, is it? That's still in this very concentrated area where they're, they're just trying to break the French position. It just seems it seems very difficult here that the, the Austrians would be able to 
to get through there. I mean, clearly, basically, if they can get past Marengo, then the whole it, it opens up because that you're then into what we think of when we think of North Italy, this sort of rolling plains, easy roads, flat terrain. But they seem to have chosen. <laughs> you've got you've got marshy rivers, um, and and you've got a, a, a real choke point. Basically, it's very, very, very difficult for the Austrians. Yes, um, and this this cavalry because of the boggy ground, uh, they get into bit of a bit of a muddle here. Um, and Kellerman is down there with his heavy cavalry and some light cavalry as well, and they attack Pilati and just wreck his two dragoon regiments, and they all come rushing back across the Fontanoni, and they're kind of stepping on top of each other, and people are actually drowning in in the Fontanoni itself because of the pressure. So that's a real setback for the Austrians, um, who, who, you know, having lost their cavalry commander, it clearly didn't help them here at all. Yes, I mean, they're, they're down now to really one uh, light dragoon regiment with Ott in the north, and then two regiments uh, around Marengo. Okay. However, to the north, uh, they're making a bit more progress. Um, once Ott has, has secured Castelseriolo, the, the advantage the Austrians um, had was that they would always send out a complete set of orders to each column commander. So each column commander would know what the overall intention was. Right. Whereas what Napoleon does um, is he only sends orders out on a kind of need-to-know basis. It's so that he can he can blame some of his commanders later on, but <laughs> that's that's a spoiler for later on. But <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but Castel Cheriolo, if Ot, if so, Ot's managed to take that, has he? Yeah, yeah, he's just marched in there. There's no French around anywhere. Yeah, so he just sort of rocks up. What sort of time was that? Uh, this is about eleven o'clock, just as the second assault went in. It seems like a pretty decent position. It certainly seems like it's one that could be used to then flank the French forces defending Marengo. This is exactly what he does, um, because he has the complete copy of the orders. He realizes that this the, the, the French aren't coming in from Sale, and what's actually where the French main army actually is is around Marengo and Spinetta, and so it's bottled up. And what he does is uh, he sends uh, some of his advanced uh, guard troops, a couple of battalions of infantry, and his uh, light dragoon regiment come down from the north. And the importance of this is that <coughs> Lan um, then sees them coming. And what he does, he has to he has to form like a like a hook formation. There's two regiments left north south, backing up Victor. There's the 28th. Uh, in square for several hours, low on ammunition, and uh, one regiment kind of is, is uh, holds like, like the back door to protect against cavalry movements around behind Lan. So his ability to support Victor is then reduced. Yeah, absolutely. So there's 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 some sort of there's, there's kind of a bit of a bit of a running battle, but uh, um, Art then sends uh, a message back to headquarters. Uh, saying, look, this is this is what I've done. Uh, do you want me to send some more in? Uh, and I would be tempted to say, yes, yes, go for it. Yes. Uh, but the other thing the Austrians have also done with, with the main force, uh, yes, again, um, probably not great staff work, but the Laufbrook and the, the flying bridges used by the pioneers were actually at the back of the column. Right. So because they just expected to march out through Marengo and it wouldn't be a problem. So they're right down the back. And uh, 
by now they've finally got these wagons up to the front. And so when the third Austrian assault uh, goes in, probably sometime uh, about half past 12, getting on, to, on towards one o'clock, um, they've found a position slightly further north of the bridge to, and, and to the north of Marengo itself, where the French can't see them. And the pioneers jump in the water and the first, uh, they form like a human bridge. Wow. And the first, the first uh, infantry just literally just walk over them. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because normally what would happen is about a third of the pioneers would be armed with muskets and they'd secure like a little bridgehead and then they'd build the, the Laufbrucker. Um, but because they had this infantry available, they sent them over to set up the position on the far side. Wow, that's that's remarkable. It sounds like something from a Dr. Seuss cartoon. Uh, when <laughs> turtles being, you know, trodden on. Um, uh, yeah, it is. It is literally just like that. Wow. They're, just, they're just running over, and because um, where they were, the French the French couldn't see them, so they managed to get the the Laufbrucker in. Uh, it's kind of between Marengo and the next farm up, which is called Barbotta. And so they put uh, Infantry Regiment 63, which is unusual in that uh, it had its own um, grenadiers were still with them, rather than usually the usual Austrian practice of massing them uh, in, into battalions, and, uh, and, and some light artillery. And they got over the Fontanone, and so now they can get round to Marengo from the north and attack Rivol and Victor, whilst uh, um, Ops' uh, advance guard is engaging land. So the pressure is really coming in on the French right. Yeah, it's not, it's not looking good for the French at this stage. Um, it feels like they won't be able to cling on for much longer unless there's any help coming, any further reserves available perhaps? Not quite at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah difficult. Um, and so at this point, um, Victor realises that uh, it's going to be, uh, he's going to be overwhelmed. And so they start preparing to withdraw. And uh, the uh, Infantry Regiment 63 makes its first assault. Then there's a second assault supported by 1st Battalion uh, Infantry Regiment 23. And they take the hamlet of Marengo and the farm and capture this, uh, capture a battalion of, of the 43rd Lean on the French side. And at, oh. the same, at the same time as the French position, the French all start pulling back now. And so they can get the cavalry across the main bridge, led by Melas and Radetzky. Radetzky finishes up, I think, with five bullets in his jacket. Right. What was Bonaparte doing at this stage? At this stage, Bonaparte is now bringing his troops up. He'd been finally convinced about sort of 12 o'clock time. Um, so he's got uh, Monnier's uh, brigade under Monnier and the Consular Guard, and they're marching up from San Giuliano, but it's seven kilometres, so they're going to be a while before they turn up. Far too, far too far away. And just a reminder, of course, the stakes are enormously high for Bonaparte here. It's not just a battle won or a battle lost. It's, 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 he's put everything on this, basically. And, and the Austrians have just taken Marengo. So this is not looking good at all for the French. No, it's not. Um, the Austrians are now pouring across uh, the Marengo Bridge. They deploy into the open uh, with, with this sort of crop-covered area. Um, but the interesting thing is, uh, ever since the outbreak of the Revolutionary Wars, it had been French doctrine to shoot senior officers, senior mounted officers. 
Right. And this is what they've been doing. And um, so if you look through the casualty reports, the number of senior officers is disproportionately high. And so they're starting to lose their cohesion. Well, it doesn't seem like it's cricket, but they probably didn't have cricket in uh, in 1800 in, in, in the Austrian forces, yeah. And uh, so as the French, the French are now pulling back towards the, the vine belt behind Marengo and also down to the southeast towards Spinetta. Is there a second viable defensive line for the French? You know, you say they're pulling back. Is, is, is there a plan B? Uh, yes, the the main thing would be Spinetta because it's on uh, because the road goes down to the southeast at Sp- to Spinetta and then it heads uh, east out towards San Giuliano. So it is the, it's the local main road. Okay. So they're looking to to form a position up around Spinetta, um, but it's very confused fighting. There are lots of reports of of units literally stumbling into each other. The the Austrians get some sort of what remained of their uh, their light dragoons who are pus- pushing the French back. Um, although Kellerman manages to get his cavalry together and and takes the pressure off. And at this stage, it's it's about two o'clock. The Austrians have taken Marengo. They're heading towards Spinetta, uh, and Spinetta sits between this north south uh, vine belt, and then there's other woodland further out to the east west, which is why it's referred to as this new Thermopylae. The reference, of course, to the uh, Persian Greek battle and in a very narrow gap. Right. Pretty much the same situation, but also the Austrians have been fighting. They've been up half the night anyway with moving troops around and they've been fighting in the Italian sun. And so they, they do kind of spread out a bit, um, get looking for water uh, and food and all this sort of thing. And... Um, they're trying to reassemble the units. And the, the problem is now the Austrian cavalry, most of it is, is in squadrons, at most two squadrons together. So there's no effective force. So the French are able to to pull back in reasonably good order. Yeah, that, that limits the Austrian ability to um, uh, follow up on their initial success with and turn it into... So it's not going to turn into a rout. No. Yeah. Um, the um, this is you, you're, you're missing these three. Those three hussar regiments and a cavalry artillery battery would have just ripped the French apart if they'd been there, but they weren't. <laughs> it sort of forces us back to to, to think about that um, uh, unsuccessful cavalry charge that the Austrians attempted after they'd lost their cavalry commander. Do you? You, what was the name of the cavalry commander again who died? Haddock. He was, Haddock, he, Haddock he's, yeah. He's the second son of the famous Haddock who raided Berlin during the Seven Years' War. Oh, right, OK. Do you think if he'd survived, that cavalry charge would have happened, the, the unsuccessful one? I think he would have got the cavalry reorganised. Reorganised them, indeed, yeah. And, and, and that's the problem here, that there isn't that, there isn't that, that, that reorganised cavalry to exploit this success. Okay, so it's it's not looking good for the French, but it's not over just yet. It's not over yet. Um, Melas, uh, who's who's ill and he's also been wounded, he goes back to Alessandria and he leaves his second in command, Kine, in charge of the entire army. Um, when was he wounded, and and how bad was that? Um, it's a bit difficult to tell. Um, it probably when the the cavalry went over. Uh, to secure Marengo uh, when the 23 and 63 came over from the north there um, and the French withdrawal began. He was probably hit there because uh, uh, Radetzky took five, five bullets to his jackets. Oh, yeah. 
Right, yeah, okay. Great. But it, it could have been anywhere. I mean, the, the director of engineers, when they were just kind of um, sat there as, as, the, as the main command there earlier in the battle, he was just unlucky. A cannonball came through and just ripped his head off. <laughs> yeah, it's all relative. Okay, yeah, right, yeah, indeed. It could have been anywhere. But he, he was, there's a lot of criticism, a lot of, you'll see a lot of criticism that Melas had, Kind of say, oh yes, well we've won, get on with it, kind of thing. But he was actually, uh, he was actually wounded and and ill, so yeah, it's perfectly all right. right. But at the same time, um, Oss had been told to uh, send a full column under Schellenberg down from Castelcicala to get right behind the French positions before yeah. they finished up back in the in the woodland. And around this time, uh, Bonaparte had already sent the recall to Desai and Le Poip, who'd gone off uh, towards Casale to the Po there. That had already gone at noon. And he himself reached the battlefield about one o'clock. And pretty soon after, he could see what Ott was doing and how the French were pulling back. And so he, he when Monnier arrived um, around two o'clock, he directs him actually up to Castelcerreolo. Okay. To the main purpose of that being really to attack the... Uh, just to attack Ott and draw his attention away from doing anything against the French right. And he briefly takes Castelcerreolo and fires into the rear of Schellenberg's column as well, which did have some effect on delaying Schellenberg. Yeah. Um, but whilst the French are sort of setting up a line of resistance at Spinetta, uh, he, just to hold things up, he, he puts the uh, main consular guard battalion, about 600 strong, with four guns to support Lanz's right. Um, and of course they go up past Il Poggi Farm and then they deploy again, it's where the Fontanoni turns west again. So they can sit behind the Fontanoni as Ott comes down from the north. Okay, yeah, yeah. So so it's this is, all sounds very sensible basically. It's it's the logical response to the situation. It's it's a block. It's uh, but they do because the uh, uh, Victor and, and Lan are pulling back. The consular guard finish up about five hundred meters further north of everybody else, all on their own. Ah, <laughs> that's quite a long way. It is, and they've deployed. They've deployed into line. And Fremont, who had the Austrian advance guard cavalry, two squadrons of. Uh, First Light Dragoons, two squadrons of the Busi Jaeger Super that's like Chasseurs à Cheval. Uh, he's, he's scouting out uh, to the east of Marengo to see what, what exactly what the French are up to. And he suddenly sees the guard deployed in line right in front of him. Yeah. So they all go piling in. <laughs> and uh, most of the guard uh, is, is captured. Uh, or wounded. The the, the stories about um, you know, standing in square for hours on end. This that was actually the twenty eighth, which had been anchoring Lands right. But the, the story was appropriated. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, uh, right. So so that they just did the getting overwhelmed bit um, without the hours of it. Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, so, yeah. We'll see how that consular guard develops in the future. But they've got the. <laughs> Not not such a good start here, okay. Not a great start, not a great end, I suppose, but there we go. Oh, it's getting well ahead. But <laughs> <laughs> and um so uh, when when they when Monnier sees this, he realizes he's gonna get cut off. So he starts withdrawing back from Castel Seriolo and uh, Bonaparte concludes that they've they've got no choice now. And Monnier Monnier was under Desai. 
No, Mon- Monnier is up. Well, he was originally under Desai, but Napoleon had appropriated him oh, when he sent Desai him. off. Okay, and so sent him up to, to, up just, to that. Yeah, okay. just Monnier's brigade. Uh, okay. And he, he, he pulls out of San Giuliano. Now the Austrians are getting their artillery across. They've got a lot of guns. There could have been about 80, 90 guns. The French have only got about 30. Right. But a lot of the... That kind of gives the impression that the Austrians are kind of blowing the French away. <laughs> but uh, in actual fact, a lot of the Austrian guns are three-pounders. Um, they're, really, they're really like pop guns or infantry support weapons. So hang on, hang on a second, David. So we've been, we've been talking about this... This You've, you've got the Bormida River uh, between Alessandria and Marengo, and then the Fontanonia Creek as well, just in front of Marengo. That's all gone, uh, and, and the Austrians have taken that. They've taken Marengo. They've they've taken that crossroads at Spinetta by now. Was it? Okay, yeah, round, round about four o'clock. So, because you mentioned San Giuliano, that is on the road going back from Spinetta, going back east. Uh, um, it's a long way back. So, um, uh, this is the French. Uh, they're basically trying to form up in front of San Giuliano. That is the new line. That's where they're fighting this now. That's kind of where they're, they're, they're thinking of, of um, forming up. And, of course, now we get to the really famous bit. <laughs> okay, yeah. Let's go, yeah. Now, Desai, uh, who'd taken about 5,000 troops off down towards Novi, expecting to find Austrian troops. I think people tend to think he must be somewhere to the south. Yeah. In, in actual fact, he'd only got as far down as Rivalta, which is on the uh, the Scrivia River. So he's kind of southeast of San Giuliano, about seven k's. Right. Okay. So not too far. Not too far. Um, um, but he's having difficulty getting over because the Scrivia is is in torrent. Right. So uh, they've only got a few units across. And when the fighting had originally started at nine o'clock, he sent a message back to Bonaparte saying. I thought this was just going to be a kind of, you know, kind of quick walk through the rear guard. And uh, a message initially goes back saying, oh, no, no, don't worry, keep going, keep heading off down towards Novi. But because he couldn't get over, a bit later on, uh, he sends uh, a messenger back himself and the two messengers kind of cross over somewhere around sort of one o'clock time and uh, Bonaparte's messenger of course who'd been dispatched about 12 o'clock uh, of course famously said to uh, to decide in the name of God return if you still can <laughs> right and so it was luck in a sense because it because this uh, Scrivia river was in torrent it, that delayed decide if it hadn't been for that decide would have been long gone yeah, and there would be no second chance. Wow. Okay, that's that's uh, okay. Noteworthy. Um, uh, uh, good good luck for Napoleon Bonaparte there. But but still, to that that gives Desai a chance of of being able to influence things. But he's still got to hurry up. Yes. So he starts pulling his troops back over, and he goes back himself, and he gets back to send to to, to um, Bonaparte's position uh, up behind Spinetta somewhere uh, somewhere after four o'clock and okay. again he famously says that the battle is lost but there is still time to win another okay yeah that's the spirit keep going yep um, and uh, he uh, his troops start to arrive um, somewhere around five o'clock and it's the Neuvième Leger and the first Hussars 
Now, the Austrians have got themselves organised into this uh, infantry pursuit column because there's basically no cavalry left. And it's um, they come, so they're coming down the main road from Spinetta towards San Giuliano. And they're led by the three battalions of infantry regiment 11 that hadn't done much all day. And then five battalions of grenadiers under San Julien. <coughs> and um, on the north side of the road, they've got some artillery. Right. And beyond that, there's a kind of a shortcut. It's called the old road. And it goes over a ridge. It's not a very pronounced ridge. Um, but it is enough, really, to cut the main army away from Ott. They can't, they can't physically see each other because of this ridge. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so uh, there's, there's, like a, there's like an artillery duel going on to the north of the road. And to the south, uh, the uh, Desai deploys the Nervium and the first Hussars um, at a place called Pistona, which is about three kilometres uh, east of uh, Spinetta. It's a little ribbon village that runs north-south okay. uh, off the road there. And with the rest of um, Desai's troops under Junon, they're to the north of the road behind the artillery. And then you've got the remains of, Cal- of Kellerman's cavalry in between. So the, the Nervier are quite a long way forward because Junon is, is back there about probably only a couple of kilometres in front of San Giuliano. So there's, there's a gap of about two kilometres between them, but the Junon's got this artillery out in front. And so what happens, the, the, the Hussars, uh, they attack uh, the Austrian, these small Austrian cavalry units and some of the infantry who are acting as a kind of skirmish force. Right. And effectively they blind uh, San Giuliano's radar by taking this lot out. And so as soon as Infantry Regiment 11 starts to reach Pistona, they come under fire from the Nervium and they get into some difficulty um, because, uh, because, because they're trying to deploy from a road column into, uh, into three, three battalions in line. And they get into a bit of a, bit of a muddle. And what they do in these situations is they, they beat what they call the Vegatarum, which is where the drummers go and form up behind the second line, which is St. Julien's Grenadiers. And then they break the line and then they reform on the drummers. So this is how the the Grenadiers finish up in front. So you've got the Grenadiers there, and behind them is Infantry Regiment 11. Further to the south, you've got the only Austrian cavalry unit that's in any decent shape and available, which is the third light dragoons. And they're, they're also down looking towards Novi to see if they can find their site with Infantry Regiment 47. But to the north of the Grenadiers, coming along the old road, is Kain with the second line, which is kind of the wreckage of most of the units that have been fighting most of the day. And then up in the north is Ott on the other side of this ridge. And the the problem is, because of this delay around Pistona, the Austrian army kind of forms like a crescent with Ott and um, the 3rd Light Dragoon Regiment are quite a long way forward. Yeah, they're well in front, yeah. Yeah, so it's in that, that kind of formation, and this is how they're going forward. 
So they're up at the north of the the, the top of the the crescent. Yeah, um, they're marching marching across yeah. from Castel Sariolo. This this is this doesn't feel so good for the Austrians because um, there's something about basically that in the morning they'd been able to build up pressure against that um, initial French line in in Marengo, and it it, it felt like that was, uh, and then of course they were able to effectively outflank. Uh, land in the north whereas now this pursuit is uh, clearly I, I would imagine the um, I mean some of these units would have been if not shattered then pretty half spent because they'd literally already fought a battle that day basically so so they're not in as, as good a position to build up that same kind of pressure and it feels like as well the terrain is a bit feeling a bit awkward this ridge is preventing them from seeing each other so that's not great um and um uh, it, it just it, this doesn't this doesn't seem to og- ogre quite as well f- for the austrians were the french in i mean the french had also been fighting of course by this stage what were the relative losses of the forces and were the french that being more cohesive in general in in their defensive approach here under well i guess under decisive direction um yeah i mean the the casualties have been quite heavy um, they've, they've probably got there's probably three or four thousand wounded on both sides um, yeah. but as I was saying the critical thing for the Austrians is they're losing a lot of senior officers oh yes you said yeah yeah and the the French are uh, Bonaparte is assembling kind of the army that uh, that was victor, that was victor and land they're all reassembling um, back in just, just to the west of San Giuliano and then decides then to the west of them, protecting them whilst they reform and get themselves sorted out. So the French are getting quite a break as the Austrians are advancing. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. So what you have now is there's a kind of a, between uh, Pistona and a position about a couple of kilometres west of San Giuliano. So it's a distance probably of two or three kilometres there's the, the the Austrian grenadiers are making a, a an advance on echelon, so they're going three two, and each one would fire, and then the other would march through, and so they they're following the Nervien back, and the Nervien are making this this fighting withdrawal uh, with the artillery duel going on to the north of the road, and then they they reach a position uh, which you can actually. It's funny if you look at uh, a lot of the a lot of the old maps of the battle, they show the fighting almost back in San Giuliano. But if you look at Lejeune's painting, you can see quite clearly they're they're two two and a half kilometres to the west of San Giuliano. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Slight difference there. Yes. It's one of these very very strange things that the information's there and nobody looks at it. But uh, but should should the Grenadiers have been pushing on with a little bit more? You know, they're being disciplined and orderly, but should they have just gone for it with a charge? Um, well, not really, because they, they didn't want to get isolated from the rest of the army. Yeah, that would turn the crescent into a bit of a, well, something else, a squiggle. <laughs> okay. The, the, the strangest thing is they've really got their most formed units under Ott and, and the, the, um, the small force down to the, to the south there. Uh, are they only really well-formed units, and the rest of it's kind of not in great shape. To the north, you mean, Ott, 
up, oh, to, oh, oh, in the north, yeah, yeah. So um, they get back to this position that Desai has drawn up June on, on the north of the road, Kellerman kind of on, on the road there, and the Nervien pulling back. And the Nervien turn around, and uh, they fire a volley. And they're fortunate enough that at the same time, uh, an Austrian ammunition wagon explodes near the, the northern Grenadier uh, battalion. And this is kind of, <laughs> well, at the time of recording, we're a few days short of the, uh, uh, the uh, film Napoleon being uh, put into the cinemas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, it appears to be the, 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 the sequence that's been in the trailers that show, shows Napoleon uh, advance, uh, joining in the charge is probably going to be Kellerman's charge. But if you look at um, the way they've got the Austrians drawn up, they're in eight lines, one, between, one behind the other. So that's the five grenadier battalions and the three infantry battalions. Yeah. But in actual fact, you, you've got this this five five grenadiers and then three um, infantry behind them. And Kellerman's Desai had called Kellerman forward and, and just said, "Look, just pick your moment." And he got the ideal moment. The, the Nervi ever fired a, a big volley, ammunition wagons exploded, and Kellerman uh, goes piling in. So he comes through the vines. Again, they don't see him because of these. It's almost like a screen. They push their way through the vines and then come out. And they go charging into the northernmost Austrian Grenadier Battalion, which is the one closest to the main road, where this wagon's also blown up. And to the north of the road, you've got three cavalry artillery batteries engaging the French artillery. And behind them is the 9th, Light Dragoons, which is probably the worst cavalry unit in the army. Um, they'd originally been um, staff dragoons, kind of unit that regimental commanders will get rid of their misfits and stick them right. in there. And then it, it's been expanded to a full six squadrons. But they were new recruits, so it's a very green unit. And so the ninth Light Dragoons try to uh, come to the aid of the Grenadiers and the artillery, um, only they get into terrible disorder. Kellerman has come through, and the front of his formation has hit the Northern Grenadier unit, and the back has headed for the Austrian artillery. And so the Austrian uh, artillery starts limbering up because they're not hanging around. And uh, although the Grenadiers are falling back initially in reasonable order, because they're retreating, the artillery is, is getting into disorder. The Ninth Light Dragoons are all over the place. And Kime, who is coming sort of down this old road, coming almost into the, the left wing, he's having to retreat as well. And so the whole army is now pulling back as the French come forward, led by the Nervium to the south and Junon to the north. And, of course, somewhere in here is where Desai gets killed by an, Aust- by an Austrian volley, famously falling off his horse just at the moment of victory. Yeah, th- this is very much the moment. Desai, who'd been with Napoleon Bonaparte in Egypt, had, 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 had made it all the way back here, was so prized by him and had clearly been instrumental in turning around the fortunes of this day. And then all of a sudden he's, he's off his horse and he's, does he die immediately or is he, is he mortally wounded? Uh, he's, he was probably killed instantly. Right, um, but his body wasn't found until some time after the battle finished because um, the French troops that they'd advanced had stripped his body. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. So, 
Excellent. So, and as they pull back, because they've they've not got these mounted officers and they're trying to make their way back through through corn and this sort of thing, um, it's impossible for the Austrians to form uh, a battle line as the French come really piling forward. They send their cap, they've got cavalry, they've got Kellerman's cavalry, they've got the Consular Guard cavalry. And so they just break up the the the, Austri- the, the, the main Austrian army and they, they flee in disorder and they get back to Spinetta. And around there is Weidenfeld, who has the other six Grenadier battalions and they form uh, a defensive position there. Okay. Um, but they they have to pull back through Marengo and at Marengo there are elements of Fremont's cavalry and uh, O'Reilly has also started to withdraw as he's realised what's happened. Yeah. But um, so they, they, they hold Marengo whilst uh, a lot of the troops just, just sort of flee back through Marengo as quickly as they away. can. And yeah. to the north, again, it's this staff problem as the... Um, as the, the main advance, uh, pursuit advance, got into trouble there, uh, Ott sort of was aware of what was going on, was getting reports about it. And he his column chief of staff was a guy called De Best, who was Zach's deputy, and he liked Zach about as much as Wadetsky did. Oh, no. More more difficulties on the Austrian staff. Yeah, and so De Best says, look, yeah, we can't really see what's going on. And uh, so um, we would just quietly withdraw back towards Castel Seriolo. So Op didn't come to his aid either. And poor old Zach, it's his birthday. And he thought he was going to have this fantastic victory over oh, Napoleon. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, he's actually by a ditch because all of this ground was covered in ditches. And uh, with, with, with Radetzky and some of the staff, uh, Radetzky and the staff uh, just get, jump over the, the ditch and clear off. And poor old Zach is just sat there absolutely stunned at what's happened. And, of course, he gets captured. He gets captured. Wow. He was having such a good birthday and then it all went horribly wrong. Oh, dear. Well, and, and the whole thing all went horrib- has gone horribly wrong for the Austrians here. Let's just, just return to this. T- t- tell us once again about which units were um, deliberately targeting the Austrian uh, officers. All, all the French infantry would do it. It's just a standard thing. Just go for them. Because the, because the, the propaganda, I mean, it's not true, it's a popular image of the Austrian army, but the propaganda was that all the senior officers were aristocrats. So it feeds into this revolutionary idea. <laughs> I see. So they said, yeah, just just shoot these guys. Yeah, they're just aristos, get rid of them. But it had the, it just takes the cohesion. Uh, there's a guy called Hauptmann Marx who was with Infantry Regiment 53, and he had a he had a couple of uh, companies under his under his command, and he says he he just couldn't see anything. Right. He's got them formed up, but he's being told you know just just keep withdrawing if you can keep them together. But he's got no idea what's going on anywhere else. All's fair in love and war, but is this the French playing dirty here and going for the officers, or is is that just? What, what? <laughs> that was an that was an that was an almost Gallic shrug, David. <laughs> Just need my gall wars, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, well, the, the French saw it as uh, you know they were Aristos, so they deserved yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, indeed. It, I think it, I think the Austrians would probably have, have considered it not really that, that if you got wounded, that it was just part of the fortunes yeah. of war. There was, but the French actually had a deliberate policy of doing it. 
So the Austrians all run away, basically. They try and get past Marengo back back to Alessandria, perhaps? Oh, yes. Yes, they, um, they, whilst um, uh, the, the Boosie Agassi preferred uh, the now North Hussars and uh, Weidenfeldt's Grenadiers form a position around Marengo, the rest of them are just legging it back, yeah. to, back to the Bormido. It's complete chaos around the bridgehead. And the French get into Marengo. Uh, I think it's is it Cognier? Cognier? Oh, I think it's Petit. Petit says that as they as the cavalry as the guard cavalry comes into uh, Marengo, the clock is striking nine o'clock. But of course, it's still light because it's the middle of June. Oh yeah, yeah. And the uh, the whole army is it, it just flees back all the way to Alessandria. And the next day, the French try what. Well, try and keep the momentum going. Berthier and some of the French staff just, just kind of turn up at the Austrian headquarters in Alessandria and say, oh, God, oh look, you know, there's no point fighting anymore just for the benefit of the British, you know, the usual French approach to these things. Oh, yeah. And, um, and they, they suggest an armistice. And although a lot of the troops were up for having another go, um, Malas decides on, on signing an armistice. And then uh, just to seal the deal, Napoleon has a he has a job lot of uh, Egyptian sabers that he carries around with him, and he he sends a, a saber to Melas saying you know, how respectful he is and all this kind of thing. Ah, well, Napoleon. So so what? So we talked about Desai. One thing I'm not clear about is why was it that Desai was the one who was basically, you know. Uh, getting things going and organizing this or, or am i wrong there or was it bonaparte who was who was trying to who was trying to organize the french in, in that line in in front of san giuliano uh well bonaparte yes he was more concerned with um what had been the main army under uh, victor and lan uh and monnier um trying to get them into an organized line so he very much left it to decide to form the form the sort of the first rank against the Austrians. And so this is very much under their size direction. So who deserves the credit then? That's the key question. Well, I think you've got to give it to Desai. <laughs> yeah. And, and what about what about um, Lan? Uh, you know, in terms of performance on the day, he, he, his troops had held up pretty well. Uh, yes, they, they, I mean, the, the French had fought a very good position. I mean, it had fallen more, obviously, on Victor because he was in, he had the advance guard and it was Rivold there actually holding the farm. But yes, between the two of them, they probably only had about, I don't know, 14, 15,000 troops, whereas the Austrians, despite the cavalry um, uh, and O'Reilly, even if you take out Ott, they still got over probably about 20,000. It feels like... It feels like on the French side, that defensive effort to, to try to hold on was was almost more impressive than the moment of actual victory and um, when when things suddenly suddenly turned. Um, I, I suppose it was. It feels like a mistake though that um, Ott was allowed to just rock up to the north, and that was the French right, wasn't it, at Castel Cheriolo, which was which was. If essentially undefended that was that a mistake that that people ought to shake their heads at um in some ways and in some ways not i mean napoleon had become suspicious of joelli telling him to go down through sale and castel seriolo so napoleon did the right thing by coming down through tortona and then san giuliano on the main road it was easier for him to be nearer to Desai, and of course he's got a, a better road anyway 
So Napoleon was right to that extent. And he wasn't really expecting the Austrians. Well, he thought it was just going to be a rear guard. And that's what he ran. That's what Victor thought he'd run into on the evening of the 13th. Well, OK, and then this comes back to the big strategic points here. Um, so so a, a rear guard action, that, but that seems strange to me because did both sides not understand that the Austrians realised that, that, that Bonaparte had got in behind him, basically, and so he needed to, he, he had no choice but to try and, to try and break out and reconnect with his supply lines to the, uh, to the east? Oh yes, I mean this. This was uh, one of these arguments yeah. that was going on on the staff was that, that they they should actually attempt this and go up uh, through Casale and cross the Po there, right? Uh, yeah, uh, and then go kind of do do a, re- a reverse move on Milan uh, just to try and break out. But oh, in yeah, the yeah. end, they they opted for the more sort of direct fight to actually fight their way out. And if they, because if they defeated Napoleon, he would have had to withdraw probably on Milan. And the road would have been back open. So that feels like the biggest mistake in all of this, that, that the Austrians should at least have forced Bonaparte back to Milan. And then, you know, why why fight here? Why go for that very narrow choke point by Marenko? You've got you've got the Fontenone Creek. That, that was a tough fight, and it was just it was only because of Ott managing to sneak round the back that 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 that, that was successful. Well, this is this is where it all comes back to this um, this struggle on the Austrian staff that Zach is trying to put one over on Radetzky and all his opponents, and he believes that he he's he says at that one stage now we have this Bonaparte because he's set this false plan out and he thinks this is all going to be happening and it's his birthday and he's going to be the big hero. And of course, he was just expecting a quick march out through Marengo and then into the into the French left somewhere around Castel Serriolo, where whilst Ott was kind of holding a fighting a holding action, he he had come to he he uh, Zach had come to believe in the spy as kind of his his uh, his salvation really, and was going to cure everything for him. And so he didn't think too much about how other other alternatives. <laughs> That's amazing. It's. It's there's so there's a lot of complexity here. Uh, it's not one of the more straightforward battles, um, with its various various bits and pieces. Um, but what a, what a situation! Look, what, what, let's let's round out the campaign. What follows then? I mean, we've got this armistice. How long does that last for? Is that it basically for for North Italy? Um, it's pretty much it uh, until the autumn. Um, yeah. Uh, Moreau is fighting uh, Cry in Germany there, and the Hochstadt is uh, five days later. Yeah. So it's it's pretty much uh, the fighting peters out until it reignites in the autumn. But the key thing for Napoleon, of course, is uh, he needs to get back to Paris because whilst whilst the cat's away, the mice do play. I uh, see. Yeah. So 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 in that sense, the armistice benefits him because it it it, it means he can he's he's won his victory. It is a victory. Um, not quite sure why the Austrians would have agreed to an armistice, though. But were, were their troops so very shattered that they couldn't carry on? The, the troops were shattered, and supplies were an issue now because the the main supply route was cut. So, if they had refused the armistice, we would have had a siege situation in Alessandria. Would it have been possibly, or they would have had to try to break out um, yeah. to, towards Casale? 
Yeah. Uh, but obviously the French had had the advantage. But Napoleon was just dead keen to you know, get it get it all wrapped up. He wasn't the, the terms weren't weren't too onerous. They had to hand over some of the key the Austrians had to hand over some of the key fortresses. Um, but that was about it. Um, and um, he went Napoleon. Uh, well, he left a bag of cash for the spy. Um, <laughs> about a, a, a thousand livre, which is I think it's about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. Not bad. In today, okay. in, today's, in today's money, and uh, he went initially. He went off to Milan because that was your, your main communications centre, and you can get all the information out from there. And he was back in Paris on the second of July, so it was only just over two weeks later. Okay, yeah, well, that's very conveniently time for the Napoleonic Quarterly as the uh, third quarter starts. So that's that. That's very that's very helpful. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, okay, well, this has been. This has been, it's it's one of those situations where so many little things could have changed the outcome, um, and it was such a dicey moment. But um, what what do you, what do you think was the most impressive thing that Napoleon Bonaparte did here in this, maybe not just the campaign um, or, or or the battle battlefield itself, and what was the worst thing? Do you think he? What was his biggest mistake here that that nearly cost him? I would think probably his most impressive thing is is the manoeuvres sur les derrière. Yeah, classic Bonaparte. Um, yeah. Classic, classic Bonaparte. Uh, even when he comes over the St Bernard and he's initially thinking about fighting his way down through Turin, he sees that from his own point of view and point of view of winning the whole campaign, it's best if he reverts to his original plan, goes to Milan, crosses the Po and cut, cuts the Austrian supply lines so that um, uh, they they have to come out and have a fight. Uh, it does mean he, he abandons Massena. Whether Massena ever forgave him for him, <laughs> for well, him was, I'm not was, sure. But was was that the worst thing he did, or maybe that was quite astute? Actually, I don't know. Uh, I think really uh, the worst the worst thing he did was probably placing too much faith um, in the in the spy uh, and the spy. Uh, Carlo Giovelli. Carlo Giovelli, yeah. What is the deal with him? So, what happened to him? Do you know what happened after this? To Carlo Giovelli. Oh yes, yes, we, we've got quite a good handle on him. Um, he he reappears in uh, 1805, and he's he's trying to get a pension from Hiller, who's got the Austrian forces in the Tyrol at the start of the Third Coalition. And um, uh, but Hiller tells him tells him to get lost. Um, but uh, for the 1809 campaign, the Austrians acknowledge that they do owe him a debt. And he's, we're not quite sure whether he's stirring up trouble in Milan or Turin. One, probably more likely Milan. Um, but he, one of them, he's, 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 he's doing a bit of rabble-rousing. And there's a, there's a letter from a, a Hungarian noble saying, I, I have certain information that uh, uh, Carlo Gioelli has been caught by the authorities and shot. Oh, so uh, we thought, oh, that's a that's a shame. <laughs> but no, he lives again. <laughs> right. He turns up um, because he's ingratiated himself with with the Austrians, and they they kind of feel they owe him. Um, they um, they get him kind of back in with the King of Sardinia. Okay. Okay. He's actually on the uh, Piedmont Sardinian delegation at the Congress of Vienna where he's also trying to get cash for getting information about what was going on on the other side. It's a pretty standard stuff with him. And we having some difficulty after that, but we, we think he probably died in the in the 1850s. Okay. 
Wow, that's amazing. What a figure. Someone I, I admit I hadn't heard of before, but what an important part he played throughout all of this. To be so skilled that you have basically both sides being pleased with you is just staggering. Yeah, and he's good. Unbelievable, and it pays the mortgage as well. That's, 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 that is staggering. Wow, okay, gosh, right. So, well, look, David, you, you've been studying this campaign very carefully for many years. Um, what has changed most in your thinking about it, your understanding of, of it over the years? I think it's um, probably the amount of material that there is. Um, Napoleon went off and he, well, Berthier's initial account on the evening of the 14th isn't, isn't too bad. Um, but of course, over time, Napoleon rewrites it several times. Right, yeah. And by the time they do the, the reenactment in 1805, um, it's become this um, kind of organised withdrawal, like it's like a pendulum going based on Castel Seriolo and then the line down to Marengo and then it kind of swings back to San Giuliano. That's outrageous. What, but you're saying so they did a, an actual reenactment in in early 1805 before everything else that happened? Just before the uh, coronation as King of Italy. Okay. Wow, that is funny. That would now that would have been entertaining to see them doing the actual reenactment. That is hilarious. <laughs> okay. Gosh. Okay. Wow. Well, uh, very good. Well, I'm sure they'd have enjoyed listening to this <laughs> um, uh, too. Well, David. W- wow. Well, this is a first for the Napoleonic Quarterly. We have um, we have done a proper deep dive on um Hochstadt on Marengo and the campaigning that preceded both those absolutely pivotal battles which changed things around for the French in 1800 in a decisive way that we had not seen for much of the 1790s certainly not on the Rhine and in southern Germany so amazing and actually you know the 1796 campaigns that was a series of victories but it was a complicated affair Marengo, all the dice are sort of stacked up, and all all the counters, I should say, they, he's put everything on that battle, and 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 it was so nearly lost. So it, it does it does stand out as being a really important moment. So I'm really glad we've we've properly taken a look at it in in close detail. Kellerman said later that uh, he he put the crown of France on Napoleon's head. Oh, controversial. Well, there might be something in that. (laughs) David, we'll definitely be hearing more from you in the Napoleonic Quarterly. But for now, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Alex. Bye-bye. Cheers.